God to pen for us five books in the New Testament. Think about that. Five. The Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. What a privileged man he was. As a matter of fact, second only to the Apostle Paul, who we think wrote somewhere between 12 and 13, if you consider Hebrews, a writing of Paul, Paul wrote more books than anybody else, but right behind him there is John, author of five books in the New Testament. John was considered by the early church fathers to be the Christian Plato. And here is why they called him that. Plato was a Greek philosopher who had the ability to make very complicated things very simple for people to understand. And they said the same was true for John. Only the early church fathers went a little further and said, when you take the writings of John and you just put them in front of you and you begin to read them devotionally and you begin to get a feel for how the Holy Spirit inspired him to reveal truth to us, this is what they said. The writings of John is like shallow water where children can play, but in that same water, elephants can swim. So it's the idea that John is going to say something and when we read it we say, oh I like that, I get that, oh that's good. And then somewhere down the road we begin to meditate on it and contemplate it and discover that there is a profoundness to what John has revealed to us. The Christian Plato. The symbol that was given to John, do you remember what it was for James, his brother? On the coin there, it was a bull facing an altar and a plow, remember? And we talked about how James was a workhorse, how he, he plowed the field. And we read in Acts chapter 12 how he became the first martyr among the 12 disciples, that is. And how he gave his life for the sake of ministry and sharing of the gospel. The symbol for John was the eagle. The eagle. I think that they chose that symbol for John for several reasons. First of all, eagles are rare birds, are they not? Are they on the endangered species list? I heard that one time. I assume they still are. Eagles. Did you know that an eagle is the only animal known to man that can look the S-U-N, the sun, in the eye and not blink? The eagle has that capacity and that ability. Some said that John the disciple was the only one of the twelve who could stand toe-to-toe with Jesus and have a heart-to-heart conversation with him. As a matter of fact, when you read through the Gospels and you see Jesus' association with the twelve disciples, it seems that there was a an allure, a drawing to John, that they just bonded, much like David and... and uh, Jonathan in the Old Testament. So, so maybe Jesus just had an affinity for John maybe because of his youthfulness and he appreciated that. But eagles also have an unusual quality. Do you know what it is? When a storm is brewing, eagles have this rare instinct to fly to the storm while the, most birds and animals flee from a storm. Eagles know that as the storm is brewing that there are thermal winds that are just 
gaining steam and momentum there and they fly into the storm because they believe that the heat will lift them to new heights. And eagles love to spread their wings and fly to new heights. Some say that the Apostle John was one of those individuals who would look adversity in the face and not fear it. But yet he would use that adversity and some even say even conflict to his own advantage to, to give him an experience that otherwise he'd never had before. When I, when I think about this, when I think about John being author of five books in the New Testament, when I, when I think about his youthfulness and his potential and all that was there and how the Lord chose him, and even though he was younger than so many of the other disciples, Jesus included him in that inner circle and leaned on him at the Last Supper and, and just befriended John maybe in an unusual sort of way. When you read this... I say to myself, I can't identify with him. I mean, he's so far up there. He's on a pedestal. He's, he's high and lofty, and we need to see him in that light. And there's such a reverence and respect for John. I say to myself, well, how in the world can I, can I identify with him? And what's, what's, what can John teach me? Maybe you feel that way. You feel like he's so, you know, distanced and so out there that you know, you don't have anything in common with John. And, and then, and then you read the Bible. Did you read that scripture? Did you hear what it said? Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and he sends some disciples on ahead of him and he says, I need a place to stay. Now, obviously, we get what's happening here, right? There's not a Holiday Inn. There's not a Holiday Inn Express. There's not a Motel 8, Super 8. I mean, there's nothing there. Jesus says, I need you to go find us a place to stay. We're not just going to show up, knock on somebody's door and say, hey, I got 12 other guys here that need a place to sleep. Right? They're going, they're going to find accommodations there. But the problem is that they're going through an area known as Samaria. Samaritans were crossbreeds. You, you see, if you study the history of the Israelites, you discover that they were first in bondage in Egypt. Then they were enslaved by the Babylonians. We know about Nebuchadnezzar, right? Then they were enslaved by the Assyrians. When the Assyrians' bondage was over and they returned to their homeland, many of these Jews had married Assyrian wives and their offspring landed in Samaria. And even though they were not true blood Jewish people, they considered themselves to be Jewish and wanted to claim ownership to the land. And that caused a problem for those who were true Jews of the Jewish bloodline. And so there was a hatred that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so in Scripture here, Luke tells us, they go into the Samaritan village and said, uh, the master teacher is coming and uh, he's got his crew with him. They need a place to stay. And the Samaritan said, where's he going? Well, he's on his way to Jerusalem. Now, when you, when you read it chronologically, you discover they're going to Jerusalem to observe the Passover. It's a Jewish feast, a Jewish festival, which the Samaritans would never have been allowed to participate in. And they said, no, if he's going there, we don't want any part of him. He is not welcome here. And so the disciples come back and report this to Jesus. 
And before Jesus has a word to say anything in response, James and John speak up and said, Lord, I tell you what we'll do. We'll just call down fire from heaven. We'll kill them. I'm, I'm just sort of playing the role there with you, right? Huh. Oh. You have a love for these folks, do you, the brother? You want to kill them. The first thing I want to show you here, and we're going to do a little anatomical evaluation of this man, John. The first thing I want to show you is John had clay feet. He had clay feet. But what I mean by that is I think that he, he had this ability to, to stumble a little bit. He, he stumbled over himself from time to time. Now, now before I get to this in depth, let, let, me, let me point out to you that last week we talked about James being the one who came to Jesus and said, Lord, when you come in your glory, we want to sit one on your right and one on your left. Maybe these boys were just a little overly ambitious, and that was part of his clay feet. Maybe they, they stumbled quite often. I, I, I opened my mouth to exchange feet. Have you ever done that? I mean, you say something and you think, oh, that wasn't right. Let me correct it. And so you try to correct it, and that's worse than the first thing you said. Right? So I think that may have been a part of them. I didn't have time to develop this with you last Sunday. I want to just show you this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three Gospels, all tell us that it was their mother who came to Jesus and said, Lord, when you come in your glory, let my boys sit one on your right and one on your left. Salome was her name. We talked about that last Sunday morning. Now, maybe they got a little bit of the idea from her, their parents that, you know, because they were kin to Jesus, that they had a right to be there and the opportunity ought to have been first theirs and they were privileged in their sense. Let me just say, all of us get it, I think. We understand parents want the best for their children. They believe in their children, right? When I became a school principal, I learned that real quick. You make a phone call home and tell a parent your child has made a mistake, bad choice at school, especially if they have to come to school and deal with that child. It's, it was, I was kind of caught off guard sometimes at first because they come to the defense of their child. I remember one time a parent sat opposite my desk and she declared, this is not my boy. Somebody's lying on him. Somebody has caused him to do this. This is not who he is. This is not, it could have never happened. And I just, without saying a word, just turned my computer monitor around where we had him on video camera right there involved in that. Ooh. When I, when I was young, before we had girls, a couple that we were friends with invited us to go with them to their child's first t-ball game. <laughs> you know anything about t-ball? When I was a child, it hadn't been invented yet. We had to hit the ball in motion, the way real baseball is being played, right? But, but t-ball, you sit it on the post. The ball is stationary. It's not moving. Boy, they dressed him up. They took pictures, you know, first t-ball game. And so there we were. I was their pastor. They were members of the church. And so we were sitting there. And first time up at bat, he comes and he swings the bat. He misses everything. Couldn't even hit the post. And there it sat. You'd think he'd undercut the ball and hit the post first. No, he, he had to swing three or four times before he finally hit the ball and it dribbled out into the infield. And you remember what happened? 
You ever been to a t-ball game? All the players on the field, even the outfielders, run to the ball on the inside. And the runner's running to first, so they, oh, go get him. So they're chasing him around the diamond as he touches first and second and third. By the time he gets to third, everybody realizes he's headed home. And so they run across the infield, and they catch him right before he gets the home plate, and he's tagged. The umpire had no choice whatsoever than to call him out. Everybody there knew he was out, except the mom. This lady, who was pretty quiet and reserved for the most part, basically had the personality of a chihuahua, now became a Doberman pincher. She latched herself to that chain link fence and starts screaming at the umpire who's on the, in the infield. What do you mean he's out? Out? You must be blind. Where did you learn to umpire? And I'm being nice. All the things that she's saying to him, I'm looking at the husband, he's looking at me, and he's like shaking his head. And he goes and pulls her off the fence and brings her back to the stands. And I mean, she just, oh, it was horrible. Last thing I remember her saying over her husband's shoulder was to the umpire, I know where you live. <laughs> I sat there and said, I'll never do that. And then I had children. And now a grandchild. We know what it's like when children are... And so maybe Salome just believed in her boys so much, even though they were grown men. She said, I want the best for them. And she was willing to put herself out. I think that clay feet was inherited. I guess that's really what I'm trying to say. And here we see that he had a violent temper. A violent temper. The temper came out... Because he had racial tendencies. You see it? Samaritans. I didn't like them to begin with. They've denied us entry, Lord. How dare them? I can't believe they've shown you disrespect this way. I tell you what we'll do. We'll just kill them. Wow. That's strong language, isn't it? Jesus even says to them, guys, you don't know what spirit you're of. The Son of Man did not come for this person. He came to save. In other places he would say, I came to seek and save that which was lost. I came for those who are sick and need healing. So Jesus put them in their place. Let me just remind you, ladies and gentlemen, that if we are to be true followers of Jesus Christ our concern, our intent, our passion ought to be that people of all nationalities, of all races, come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And that's what I think Jesus was trying to teach them there. He had a violent temper. Look at the next thing here. Look back earlier in this, in this chapter. Look up at verse 49. Look at what it says here. John answered, by the way, this is the only place in the New Testament where John speaks by himself. John answered and said, Master... We saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. <laughs> but Jesus said to him, do not hinder him for he who is not against you is for you. Look at the next slide. He didn't have just a violent temper. He was a religious bigot. Oh. Lord, uh, we, we saw some guys... Uh, there's some pretty good things. Read the first part of this chapter. You'll discover that Jesus has commissioned the 12 and told them to go out and preach and teach and heal even. 
And they did that. And maybe it's a follow-up on that experience that John begins to say, Oh, Lord, we, we saw some other guys trying to do what we were doing, and we told them to stop. And Lord, well, why did you do that? Because they're not one of us. They're not in the club. They're not receiving the training. They don't have the certification the ordination. We, we told them they were not qualified to do it. Right? <laughs> Listen, my wife flew out yesterday to the Southern Baptist Convention in Dallas, Texas. She goes as a delegate from Mississippi College every year, wherever the Southern Baptist Convention is held. And I tell her the same thing. I tell her the same thing every time she goes. And she says, I know what. I said, if you get a chance to say to the crowd, remind them, we can't do it alone. Because that's a feel I get sometimes. If you're not Southern Baptist, oh boy. Now listen. I'm Southern Baptist by choice. Southern Baptist is my denomination. I feel like that we have the great mission engine and opportunity through the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, through the Margaret Lackey State offering, through the, uh, who am I forgetting? Lottie Moon, thank you. International missions offering to reach the world for Jesus Christ. But anybody who says if they're not Southern Baptists, they're not doing it right. Uh-uh. Listen, there are many, many evangelical people out there who are Christ-centered, who simply don't agree with our policy and procedures, but yet say, we want to honor the Lord. Sometimes the bureaucratic red tape gets in the way, and they say, we're going to go and do it regardless. I remember my ordination. I was ordained at the age of 19. And the deacons asked me, what are you going to do if we tell you we're not going to ordain you? I said, I'm walking out that door, and I'm going to preach. And that should be our spirit. But to be mindful that we are Christ followers, not church followers, not denomination followers. John had the wrong idea here, I think, and he, he stumbled all over himself. I'm beginning to feel a little better about myself now. How about you? Author of five books, The Eagle, all of that worthy of recognition and worthy of respect, I assure you, but this is early on in his life. There's a second thing I want you to see here as we evaluate who John was as a man, as an individual. And the second thing I want you to see is that I believe he had calloused hands. Do you know anything about calloused hands? The calluses come about over time. Calluses represent the fact that you have applied your hands to some labor, to some work, to some, some project of some kind, that you are actually doing something that assumingly you know how to do. Well, I want to ask you a question. Where did John get the calloused hands? I'm going to give you some ideas to think about, but in Acts chapter 8, I want you to listen to this very carefully now. I'm just going, it's just one verse. Just, just listen very carefully. In Acts 8, you remember this is where Philip, who was a deacon, was in a revival in Samaria. Remember Samaria? Luke 9, they were trying to go through Samaria. Jesus called Philip out of that revival down to the Gaza Strip where he met the Ethiopian eunuch riding in the chariot, reading the book of Isaiah. Remember? Before we get to the story in Acts chapter 8 that tells us about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. I want you to listen to what it said. Revival had broken out in Samaria because Philip was there. Verse 14 it says, Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John. 
This is the formation of the early church. They're hearing about a revival in Samaria and they said to themselves, we need to go look for ourselves and check this out. We need to see. They're proclaiming Christ down there. How are we? we need to make sure that they're doing what they're saying there and that, that, everything, that the people have heard and received the word correctly. Who did they send? Peter and John. Folks, this is my twisted humor, okay? Nobody else has ever gotten this. You won't, ever, you won't even get it either. But in my mind, Peter and John are leaving Jerusalem. They're walking to Samaria. And when they cross the border, Simon Peter looks at John and said, You smell smoke? <laughs> now, I just think that's hilarious. Because that's where John wanted to call down fire from heaven and consume everybody. And Peter says, I wonder if you feel any different about these people now. Yes, I think over time, John began to apply some things that Jesus had taught him. And he'd had some experiences with Jesus that, that caused him to change. What I'm showing you here is that, oh, Jesus took a man, transformed him from a, a mind and a heart that was prejudiced to one that was pure, one that truly loved people and wanted to do something in the interest for Christ and for the sake of eternity. And so when they heard about a revival, he said, we need to go check it. And God will do that with you too. You have a problem, a reoccurring sin, a prejudice that just sort of lays under your spirit like a blister or a splinter under your skin. You know how after you take the splinter out or remove the blister, sometimes it's sore and then when it heals up, it's a little calloused there. The callous may be a sign of healing. What God will do is He'll force you to deal with it, like He did John. I wonder if they nominated John in that meeting and said, we need you to go to Samaria. Oh, no, I'm not well thought of there. I don't really need to go back. Oh, it's you. We're going to send you and Simon. And so they went. Maybe that's where he got calloused hands. Maybe it was on the island of Patmos. Remember, later in his life as John is exiled and as he thinks about all the persecution that's going on around the world, I think he wondered, would that be the end of the church? And personally, I think John was depressed. I think John was just so perplexed that why he was here and he could no longer be involved in ministry. And that's when the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus, came to him on the island of Patmos and said, John, this is not the end. Let me show you what the end will be like. And literally, Jesus opened the windows of heaven to reveal to Jesus all that would take place in the end. And John would write down for us, what we would know is the book of Revelation. How end would come, the end would come, the end of time. Maybe that's where he got calloused hands. Maybe it was at the foot of the cross. Jesus spoke seven times while he was on the cross. The Bible says at one of those times Jesus looked down and saw John and Mary there and said, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And from that point on, John took her into his home and cared for her. Maybe that's where he learned have callous hands, but I want to tell you, I think it really started in the upper room. You know why I think it started in the upper room? Because there all the disciples were arguing over who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And in John 13, John 13, the Bible says that Jesus 
took a belt, wrapped it around his waist with a towel and a basin of water. And he washed the disciples' feet. And then he looked at him and said, Guys, as I have done for you, so you should do for one another. Maybe that's where John began to really apply the truths and the principles that Jesus was trying to teach, not just him, but them and us. John not only had clay feet and calloused hands, but I want to tell you, he had a soft heart, a pure heart, one that God could use. Do you realize, folks, that it's only John that would record for us what many people believe to be the greatest gospel verse in all the Bible, John would record the words of Jesus that said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. John wrote about themes that nobody else would write about. John would write about light and darkness. He would write about the I am statements of Jesus, where Jesus said, I am the door, I am the shepherd, I am the water, I am the true vine, I am all of these things Jesus would reveal about himself that nobody else would record for us except John. Did you know John was pastor in Ephesus? He was. And tradition says that 1 John, the letter of 1 John, was written back to the church at Ephesus. Read 1 John for yourself. It won't take you long. Just read it for a few minutes this afternoon before you slip off into your afternoon nap. Remember what it says? John says, little children, love one another. Love one another. John would remind us that Jesus said, Greater love has no man than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. There's a story from tradition that says that toward the end of his life, John was invited back to Ephesus, and in my mind, it was like a homecoming. It was a big event, you know, once a year where people would in, uh, be invited back who were part of the church or members of the church but had moved away. And so they might invite some staff members back, some former pastors. We know that Apollos was a part of the church at Ephesus. And, and so surely he would have been there and John was there. And As this story goes, it says that the former church leaders were invited to speak and they came and Apollos delivered a, just an amazing sermon and then came John. And he was old and feeble and walked with a cane. And in my mind, somebody would have to help him up to the place where he would stand for the people to speak. And as he stood there, he looked out over everybody. And this is what he said. One sentence, three times. Little children, love one another. Little children, love one another. Little children, love one another. And then he turned and walked away. The people who didn't know him said, oh, poor John, he just doesn't have it anymore, doesn't have the fire and the passion. But for those who knew him, they sat in quietness and solitude with tears running down their cheeks 
and said it was the summation of his life. More than anything else, he wanted people to know the love of God in Christ. You want to read theology? Read Paul. You want to study ethics? Read the book of James. But if you want to plumb the depths of love, read the writings of John. And as you do, watch how God changes your heart.